0: The book, or just right at the halfway point, I guess, would be the best way to put it. We have dealt with the the, basically the first half of the tribulation period for the most part. Uh, In that, we have seen uh, the rapture taking place as the kind of the starting point. Uh, The Antichrist comes to power, and for three and a half years, makes peace with Israel. During that time period, uh, the little book or the seven sealed book is opened. Um, and each of the seals were different things that happened to the earth and to um, uh, people, people that were in the earth and uh, different um, plagues and, and things that would take place. And then at the end of the sixth seal, there was a, a pause. We had a chapter there where God kind of pauses everything, and He seals all of those that uh, have, are, are believers that have trusted Him as their Savior. He puts a seal and a mark uh, on them. And then begins the seventh uh, seal, and they open the seventh seal, and in that are seven trumpet judgments. And so we started going through the seven trumpet judgments. We got through the first uh, five, or, I'm sorry, the first four, and then we have uh, what are called the three woes the fifth uh, trumpet, the sixth trumpet, and then this latter half of the tribulation period, which entails. Uh, the seventh trumpet and the things that will come out of it, uh, as the three different woes. Chapter uh, the, the fifth trumpet dealt with the first woe. The sixth trumpet dealt with the second woe. And then uh, after the sixth trumpet, similar to after the sixth seal, there's kind of a break in the narrative. In chapters 10 and chapter 11, um, kind of stop the narrative of the trumpet judgments and give some insight, a very high level, high uh, uh, summary of What's getting ready to transpire. And so he, he kind of gives a, a, a broad, paints with a broad brush uh, some events that are going to happen. And he does that in chapters 10 and 11. Then, towards the end of chapter 11, we find he picks up that narrative again. And um, the seventh trumpet uh, begins. Uh, the third woe is coming, and that's part of all the things that will be in this uh, seventh trumpet judgment. In uh, chapter number 11, we began to study a little bit uh, about the, uh, little, the, the little book that John was told to eat that was sweet to the taste, but bitter to the stomach, sweet to the lips, but bitter to the stomach. We talked about that more than likely representing the gospel message. And um, uh, that, that uh, at the end of that, John was told that he must prophesy again um, in uh, this, uh, this statement that was made regarding that. Uh, was in reference to the fact not that he was going to create a new prophecy, but reiterating the fact that John was supposed to be recording and prophesying these things that he was being shown. Just a kind of a a, a, a reminder of that. That brings us to chapter number 11. And uh, we spent some time on this a little bit towards the end of last week, and didn't get too far into this. But chapter number 11... Uh, John is, I I dealt with the the two witnesses just at the end to give you kind of a brief taste of that. But at the beginning of chapter 11, John is instructed here, and it says in verse 1, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. Now, this is referring here uh, uh, to uh, uh, the temple that uh, is in Jerusalem. In verse number 2, it says, "...but the court which is without the temple, leave without, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles..." And the term Gentiles here is used in a generic sense to refer to those that are lost. Uh, And uh, it says, "...unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months." And so for the first three and a half years, the Antichrist and those that are uh, unsaved, ungodly... Those that follow the Antichrist and worship the Antichrist, they're going to be the ones in power of the city of Jerusalem and in the temple. Um, it's interesting. Uh, hold your place here for a minute. Turn with me to Second Thessalonians, uh, chapter number two, and I'm going from memory on this, and you know how my memory goes on this one. Uh, uh, Second Thessalonians, chapter number two. And uh, let's go down to verse number 4. Paul writing here, he says, "...who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God." Now this is in reference to the Antichrist. I'm going to back up and read verse 3 so you can understand that we are speaking here of the Antichrist. It says, "...let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come." Except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Then it says, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, that he uh, so that he as God sitteth, and notice this phrase, so that he as God sitteth, and this is the phrase I want you to see, in the temple of God. And so there's going to be a period of time where the temple is going to be rebuilt, a physical temple on this earth. Uh, At this point in history, there have been two temples that have been built. Some people refer to the expansion and revitalization of the temple by Herod during the the time periods between the Testaments um, as a third temple, but it really technically was not a third temple. It was still uh, there was Solomon's temple, and that was destroyed and burned under Nebuchadnezzar and the the Babylonian captivity. And then we've been studying in, in the Old Testament surveys Recently, about Nehemiah and Ezra and Haggai and uh, Micah and some of these guys uh, during this time period that were um, that were uh, I'm sorry Malachi that were uh, going back to restore the walls of Jerusalem and they did that under the leadership of Zerubbabel and uh, he was responsible for building the foundation of the temple and getting that started. And then years later, uh, Haggai comes on the scene, and the temple was still not finished yet. And so uh, Haggai comes on the scene and tells the people to to get the wood and to go up into the mountain and to build the house, and God would take pleasure in it. In chapter 2 of Haggai, some of the old-timers remembered the original temple, and uh, they said, this is nothing like the original temple, and uh, said, we need to to rebuild this thing, and uh, it's not going to be like the original one. And God tells the folks that are building, He said, look, you, you, you be strong, keep on going, don't let them discourage you. Because He said, I will fill this temple with my glory. And the glory of this latter house will be greater than the one of the first house. So it wasn't about the ornateness of the, the temple that brought glory to God, it was His presence. And so there were those two temples. Uh, that temple was kind of in disrepair and, and never really kind of got finished. They were always seeming to work on it. And uh, Herod comes along and to try to appease the nation of Israel during the time of Christ, uh, he does a large expansion of that and kind of gets the the temple practice going again for the uh, nation of Israel. And that's the second temple. Later on, in, in uh, under Tide, uh, I think it was uh, uh, during the time of Titus. Uh, 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 I'm trying to remember my history, but anyway, it was it was destroyed again uh, in around 70 A.D. or so. Um, and so there is no temple there now. Obviously, we know that. There will be a new temple erected um, here on this earth in, uh, in Jerusalem. And for the first three and a half years, this Antichrist is going to sit in that temple as God. People are going to think he's God. And um, this is what it's referring to here in chapter 11 when it talks about the fact that the Gentiles are going to be trotting this place underfoot for forty and two months. That's the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. So that kind of brings us back now to Revelation 11 and verse number three. And uh, it says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, we believe these two witnesses, I, I've read a couple people who think these guys are prophesying in the first part of the tribulation period, but there is no evidence of that. It seems that they are always... Uh, referred to as the second part of the tribulation period. There's a lot of biblical reasons why that is. One of them being the order that it speaks of here in chapter 11. That for the first three and a half years, the Antichrist is in the temple. And then there's another three and a half years that's spoken of separately in verse number 3. Where these two witnesses come. We talked a little bit last week about who they were. Some people think it's Elijah and Moses. There's probably good Bible reasons why it could be Elijah and Moses. However, The truth is it doesn't matter. If it mattered, God would have told us. Uh, We we spend a lot of time sometimes when we study prophecy straining at a gnat to swallow a camel and trying to figure out things that God has not chosen to reveal to us. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with digging deep and studying and trying to find the what-ifs and the probabilities of. I think there's some, some, some benefit to that. But don't get so bogged down trying to find out things that God doesn't choose to tell us. It really doesn't matter who they are. And I took some time last week to show you, even on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, uh, again, the important thing is, what are they doing? The, what they're doing is to bring prophecy about the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see what those prophecies are, and some of those things are here in just a little bit. And um, the, the, uh, they're doing the work of God. And the work of God at this point is, is more important than who they are. Bringing glory to God is always the most important thing. When they went on the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter said, let's build three, three temples here, three tabernacles here so they can all just live here, uh, immediately God sent a dark cloud and covered them. And the only, people, the only person they could see then was the Lord Jesus Christ. God does not share His glory. And uh, He is to be the preeminent one. And anytime we try to elevate man to God's level, and by the way, there's an awful lot of that going on today. Anytime we try to elevate man to God's level, you can rest assured that is a spirit of Antichrist. That is someone trying to take the place of God. And the Bible speaks of that, that in the last days there will be many Antichrists, meaning that there are going to be many that will put themselves in the place of God. And we're living in those days. We're certainly seeing those days. We have to be careful because even in our own lives, uh, I have recently in my life been so convicted that even some of the things that That I say, or I catch sometimes other people saying, that we're trying to draw glory or praise of men to ourselves in what we say. And the truth is, we're here to glorify God, not ourselves. And we've got to be so careful of this. Verse number uh, 4, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. We spoke a little bit on that last week um, about the fact that they will not be able to be killed. For three and a half years, they're going to prophesy the whole time of the end of the tribulation period. There is another set of days that is given, and we'll get to that uh, in a few weeks here in Revelation, where it is uh, 30 days and then 45 days further beyond uh, the three and a half years that takes place prior to the setting up of the millennial kingdom. And we'll look at that uh, as we get along there. But at the end of the three and a half years, these two will be killed. Uh, verse number five, it says, or verse number six, These have the power to shut the heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So these two are given the discernment by God. And certainly as his servants and as his prophets, I believe that they are, they are, they are in tune with God, as far as their relationship, they talk with Him, I believe, and are, are very much in in the submitted will of God in these matters, because it says that they can do these plagues as often as they will, and so God gives them that discretion uh, to be able to make those choices to bring plagues. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which, is, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. We said that this is actually a reference to Jerusalem. It has become so wicked at this point and so ungodly at this point that spiritually they're referred, it's referred to as Sodom and Egypt, which are both places throughout Scripture are places that were pictures of the world, pictures of the flesh, pictures of a sinful nature, the lost condition of man where also our Lord was crucified. And so this is how we know that it's referring here to Jerusalem physically, but is named Sodom and Egypt spiritually. And they of the people, verse 9, and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves, and they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets... Tormented them that dwelt on the earth, and uh, isn't it amazing how gleeful it seems that the world is uh, when things happen to those that name the name of Christ? They take they take pleasure in it, don't they? And it's not hard for us. It, uh, you know, fifty years ago, a hundred years ago, people still had the courtesy to feel bad when something bad happened, even to their enemies. Many times they would feel bad about it. And, uh, but we're living in a time period where the hearts of men have grown so cold that uh, they take glee in this. It's almost like a, a celebration, a, like, like, like a holiday, because these had tortured them that dwelt on the earth. And understand this. Uh, these two witnesses are prophesying. They're telling about God and, and the things that are yet to come. They're giving warning to the people. God only does that to give more people an opportunity to still turn to Him. Even at this point, there is opportunity for people to turn to Him. And what's so appalling about this verse is the fact that through all of this, even though they know this is the judgment of God, even though they know that these things are bringing uh, the judgment, they are blaming the two witnesses for the plagues they're going through. But really, who's to blame for the plagues they're going through? They are, aren't they? Kind of sounds like our current political situation, doesn't it? We always blame something on someone else that the truth is the problem is lying within. And we have raised now, and I'm not, I'm not just being critical of our politics here in America. I'm telling you, folks, we're raising generation after generation now of people, young people, who have been taught, it's not my fault, it's somebody else. We teach it to them in sports. We teach it to them at school. And how many of you, when you were young, if you got in trouble at school, you got in trouble at home? What about even when the teacher was wrong, you still got in trouble at home? Yeah, there you go. That's our generation. Look at the generation today. The kid can be violent, the kid can be disruptive in class, and the teacher tries to discipline him, and the first thing that happens is mom calls for a meeting, or dad calls for a meeting, or both. And they come in and they talk about, not my little angel, he's perfect. You know what has happened? In just the last two or three generations, our society has begun to believe that men are inherently good. And the truth is, men are inherently bad. We are inherently evil. So much so that within just the first several generations after the creation and the fall of man, the Bible said that they only did that which was evil continually. Their imaginations were given to it. Every moment they were conscious, they were thinking of evil things. So much so that God said, I, I've got to destroy the earth. And He did with the flood. The Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And the truth of the matter is, God will have to probably apologize to that group back there if He doesn't do something soon because our society has gotten that bad or worse. We're living in a time... Where the imaginations of the heart of men are only evil continually once again. We're just there, folks. We're, we're, we're we have for far too long sat by and, and allowed, it's amazing how, how, how uh, willingly we were ignorant of the education system of our country. The influence that people were putting on the minds of our children. And as churches, we thought, well, bringing them to Sunday school for an hour a week will be enough. The family altar disappeared. Our family prayer times disappeared. Mom and dad sitting down and talking about spiritual matters with their kids disappeared. Homeschooling and educating them at home and teaching them about the things of God disappeared. And we began to turn the responsibility of rearing kids, not educating, to the government. And that was never, never God's intent. And we're reaping the results of it. Uh, let's go to verse number twelve. The Bible says this. Uh, um, let's go to verse. I'm sorry, verse number eleven. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. These two witnesses, they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell upon them, which saw them. And so, once again, these folks they're, they're fearful of these things, but they still do not repent. They still do not turn. And and you know, it's isn't it amazing how often we Become very critical of people that don't do what we think they should be doing spiritually. But when you look at that, the hardness of their heart—it's I, I, one of those things. When I see it, I have to—I I get so angry and I get so upset and frustrated at them. And it's not very long before I have to stop and say, "But wait a minute! Are there some things in my life that I know better? I've read it in Scripture." that I'm still stubborn about and hard-hearted enough about that I still do them anyway, or I things I know I should do that I still don't do them anyway. And we can be overly critical sometimes of the world and those that are lost, but the truth is, if we're not careful, we'll have a pharisaical attitude, which is, I'm perfect, they're not. The truth is, we all have that propensity, we all have that human nature that causes us to overlook our faults. I mean, I'll tell you, every time I look around, I don't care. The best people I know, they are horrible in all the things they do. Now, I'm not, but they are, because, boy, the things they do, they are much worse than the things I do. Isn't that the way we feel? If we felt as bad about the things that we know we're disobedient to God on, as we get angry and frustrated to others that we see who don't obey God, maybe God could do something in our lives to help us be more like Him. It's interesting that when God was speaking to Satan about His servant Job, He spoke of him as a righteous and an upright man, but He made this statement, One who escheweth evil, He hates it. He understood the, the seriousness of sin. We're living in a day where even God's people condone the sin either by our silence or our practice. We allow it to go on. We don't, we don't, we don't say, listen, sin is sinful. We, we don't talk about the, the penalties and the, 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 the things that are that are so degradating about sin and not only in, in spiritually in our lives and our relationship to God, but even in our day-to-day life. How much of a reproach it causes to the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I'll tell you, one of the fearful things I think of often is the the times that, and maybe I was aware of those times, and maybe even sometimes I wasn't aware of those times, but times in my life where I was not what I should have been as a Christian, that could have caused somebody who was wondering about whether to get saved or not, to choose not to get saved. That's a fearful thing, folks. I don't want to be guilty of, of causing someone to have a reproach for the things of God. And yet, so often, we, we cr- are critical of others who do this. And yet, we ourselves oftentimes have things. That we, But you know, to us, the things we have, they're not as big, right? Because they're the ones we have. But they are just as big. They are just as important. Notice in verse 12, we'll, we'll just go a little bit further here and then be done early, early tonight. Although we do have cool air tonight. Aren't you glad of that? Praise the Lord. We got our air conditioner fixed this week. And they heard a great voice from heaven, and, uh, saying unto them, "Come up hither." And they ascended up in the cloud uh, up to heaven in the cloud. And their enemies beheld them. And the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth part of the city fell in the earthquake. Uh, were slain uh, of men seven thousand, and the remnant, those that were not killed, is what it's referring to here. Not the remnant meaning believers. So keep it within the context of that verse. It's dealing here with those that, that did not die were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. And while there is a recognition of God, there is not repentance, there is not this idea of turning to God with their hearts. Uh, There is a recognition of His might, His power, and this is the glory that they give to Him. Uh, They finally acknowledge that it is God doing these things. But you will not find that there is repentance going on here or them turning to Christ and believing and trusting Him. Verse 14 says, The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. So this ends the narrative uh, of chapter 10 and the first part of chapter number 11, uh, about two-thirds of chapter 11, the, the kind of pause that has been put on between the seventh tr- or sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. So we're getting ready now to launch into this last trumpet judgment uh, in verse 15. So when he speaks here of the seventh angel, he's talking about the one that's sounding the seventh trumpet. He says, "...the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God." Uh, saying we give thee thanks O Lord God Almighty which art and was and art to come because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned and so if you'll remember back in the six seals that were opened and then there was the pause and God uh, sealed those that were believers and then when the seventh seal was opened if you'll remember back there was a, a silence in heaven for the space of about a half an hour now we come to the seventh trumpet and instead of silence, we hear a great voice. I, I, there's, some, there's some discussion among some of the people that study these things and write stuff about them, about what, what is going on here, why this is being put in this place. But when this seventh trumpet begins, um, there is a great rejoicing. There's, there's a worshipful attitude that's taking place. And uh, what happens is, uh, the, uh, in the seventh angel... Uh, He starts off the seventh seal by saying that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And he's speaking here of the fact that uh, up until this time, for three and a half years at least, and if you want to go back even into the time period that we're living in now, there is the, the, the opportunity for you and I as Christians to think Satan really has a hold on this world, doesn't he? And at least for the three and a half years of the first part of the tribulation, they see the world being ruled by the Antichrist, they see the holy city Jerusalem being occupied by the Antichrist, and by the Gentiles or the unsaved, the the wicked folks that are following after the Antichrist. And it would be easy for those that were believers, that trusted in Christ, that were living during this time period, and even possibly for some that were in heaven, to begin to wonder how long is God going to allow Satan to just have free reign in the, in the earth and do what He's doing in the earth. The angel says, it's getting ready to stop right here. God's giving him time. Here it is. The beginning of the seventh trumpet, He says this, from this point on, God is taking control of it. And uh, he, is, he is the one, the Bible says, not only that, uh, is be, that uh, He's taking this world, where it says that they're becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, but it says this, that He shall reign forever and ever. Once he takes a hold of it from this point forward, God reigns over it. Nothing happens in this world that God does not allow or permit. It's interesting because as a response to this declaration that the angel makes, the natural response is worshiping Him. The angel says, here's God, He's going to take control of the world and reign over it, not only now, but forever and ever. And they fall down and they begin to worship. The 24 elders here we studied earlier in the book uh, more than likely is representative of all of uh, those that have trusted Him as their Savior, whether Old Testament or New Testament saints. They kind of are a representative uh, of the whole uh, group of believers, and uh, at least as best we can tell of this. And they, uh, they would sat before God on their seats, fell on their faces, and worshipped Him, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty. Notice this. Which art meaning you have been in the past, and or, 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 you are in the present. I'm sorry, and was thou hast been in the past, and art to come. You will in the future. Notice what it says here: because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. Even though it seems that Satan has been the ruler of the things on this earth. Understand this, that God is still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And at no time did anything that Satan did on this earth happen that God could not have prevented. He is still the supreme ruler of it. Satan has been given a privilege by God. He's been given a liberty by God to do the things that he has. But rest assured, God has not lost the fact that He still is the King over this earth. That He is still the One that is the preeminent One. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is above all. I I, I get frustrated sometimes when I hear people talk as if Satan is an equal evil power to God. That there's somehow this great struggle between good and evil. The truth is, there's no struggle at all. (coughs) Because of the free will of man, God has given... Satan the license to do what he's done. But rest assured that this is not something that God has uh, given over to Satan and not retained the, the kingship of it. He is still the king of this world and this universe and all that therein is. Notice what it says in verse 18, "...and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come in the time of the dead, and they should be that they should be judged." And that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And so, uh, as they begin this seventh uh, judgment, the worship is taking place. They now look to uh, the judgments. There's going to be two major judgments. The judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment. And I'm going to teach on that next Wednesday night what those two are. Uh, in depth. We're going to talk a lot about them and who's going to be at each one of them, what's going to be judged at each of them. And if you've ever been confused about those things, uh, then come next week and you'll, you'll be able to be a part of that. Uh, I just want to make this comment and then we'll end. Um, the first three and a half years primarily gives a record of events that take place. From this moment on, from tonight on, you'll find that, the, that there still will be events that we'll talk about, but the primary focus of Revelation from chapter 11, the end of chapter 11 and onward, is really focusing in on the characters and the, the folks that are influential during this time. Uh, you're going to start seeing um, the beast. You're going to see the false prophet. You're going to see the dragon. You're going to see uh, the, uh, the uh, two witnesses again in detail and in depth. So we're going to be dealing... It's interesting that it focuses mostly on events during the first part, uh, of it, and then it deals with uh, characters on the last part of it. I apologize, I normally turn my phone off, and I apologize for that. So, uh, anyway, so come back next week. We'll deal with the two judgments uh, next week. And I'm also going to spend a little bit of time uh, because the Bible refers to this regarding the temple of God in verse 19. Uh, the Bible says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven. And so we're going to talk about the temple in heaven next week a little bit, too, if we have time. Uh, but those two things, uh, and, and I, I'm, I'm excited uh, about the temple in heaven. And part of that discussion, I'll, tell you, I'll go ahead and tell you. So you, if you're thinking about missing, you, maybe you'll change your mind. So, all right? Because I know so many of you think that way. Not really. But uh, we're going to attempt to answer scripturally and biblically a question I've been asked many, many times. And that is, are we to be still practicing all of the things that God gave to the nation of Israel in the law in the Old Testament when it comes to the areas of uh, worship? I had a fellow a number of years ago come to me down in Florida when I was pastoring, and uh, he was part of a group of folks that believed that you still needed to go through and do all of the, uh, the temple worship uh, ordinances and procedures and all of the things that were found in the Old Testament. And he said, nowhere do we find that that you're not supposed to do that. Well, I think there are scriptural grounds where we do find that. If we're not to be doing those things, then does the Bible tell us in the New Testament things we should be doing to replace those things? If you want to find the answer to that one, come back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Uh, Isn't the Bible exciting? I'll tell you, it's got so much in it for us. And uh, looking forward to it. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful uh, for your word, how it instructs us, how it guides us. And we do pray that you will help us as we uh, finish out uh, this book. It's a wonderful book to study. We don't study it uh, very often. But, uh, Lord, as we do, I pray that you'd help us to glean from it what you'd have us to do. Dismiss us now with your blessings. Give us safety on the way home, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.